I have a trivia question for you this morning. Here's my question. Do you know what the deadliest sea creature in Hawaii is? The deadliest fish in Hawaii. I know some of you, I, I'm already hearing it. It's, it's not sharks, okay? That's not the deadliest creature in the sea. I know some of you think, okay, like moray eels or barracudas. No, 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 that's not it. I even saw jellyfish. No, it's not box jellyfish. There's something that kills, sadly, very sadly, multiple people every year here in Hawaii in the ocean. And it's not because of something that this fish does that makes it deadly. It's because of where this fish lives. That's why for hundreds of years, Native Hawaiians have said, the fish of death is the opihi. That's the deadliest fish in Hawaii. It's a little mollusk that lives right in the, in the impact zone where the waves crash. And so maybe you've gone and you've picked opihi because you can take a little butter knife and go out to the rocks, right, where the waves are crashing and just slide that butter knife in, pry it off, and then slide that sucker right out of his shell and then eat it raw right there in the ocean. It's delicious. It's awesome. But you also know, if you've picked opihi, that if you don't get them the first time, you don't get a second chance. Because once you make an attempt and an opihi and he senses danger, he grips on tightly to the rock and he is stuck to that rock like glue. There's nothing that's gonna get that thing off of the rock. No wave is gonna crash and pry him off that rock. The wave will crush you by crashing on your head. And so that's why the opihi is so dangerous. And that's why a few years ago, uh, now I think maybe 20 years ago, scientists at UH marine biologists decided they wanted to try to farm opihi, make it less dangerous to pick opihi. And so they created the perfect environment for opihi, a nice, just calm pool of water, ideal temperature, no waves, no danger to the opihi, perfect amount of food and algae for it to eat, perfect source of, of fresh seawater coming in all the time. It was the perfect environment. Those opihi were so perfectly comfortable. And you know what happened? All the opihi died. They didn't survive. And so the scientists discovered through that that opihi actually thrive when there's adversity because every time a wave crashes on them, they're forced to cling tightly to the rock and that over and over again is what makes them strong and healthy. Guess what, family? It's the same for us. We live in a world where we are constantly getting pounded on the head by waves. Waves are crashing all the time. Relational waves, financial waves, political waves. They're always common, and it can seem like it's never going to stop. We wonder, how are we going to deal with these waves? Well, the answer is in the opihi. The answer is in the opihi. We've got to cling to the rock. We've got to find hope in the rock of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to hear today from a prophet named Jeremiah. So if you got your Bible, open to Lamentations chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. Lamentations 3. It might have been a while since you've been in Lamentations. So I'll give you a little pro tip. If you hit Psalms and you're using a physical Bible, turn right. And Lamentations will be pretty close there. If you're using a fake Bible on your phone, like I do most of the time, just find Lamentations and hit that. That'll, that'll take you there like magic. Lamentations, it was written by Jeremiah at a time when Israel was getting crushed by the waves. The Israelites were looking for some kind of hope. We're always looking for hope. We're similar. We look for hope in all kinds of places. 
We look for hope in relationships. That's why we get married. Even though we know the, the odds are 50-50, that marriage is gonna last, right? That's what the statistics say. We still get married. We're looking for hope in relationships. We look for hope in education. That's why we take out $100,000 loans to pay for college. We have hope that that's gonna get us somewhere. We look for hope in government. If we just elect a better president, everything will be better. Yeah, that's never worked once, as long as I've been alive, but we keep trying, right? We look for hope in our work, in our kids, in our sports and hobbies. We look for hope in the Christmas season, in the Christmas carols that are always playing nonstop on the radio. We keep thinking we're gonna find hope somewhere. In the ancient world, people besides the Israelites, they were a lot less optimistic than us. They, they believed there was no hope. They believed that history is just one long cycle, just endless cycle, because all they knew were the seasons, right? Summer and winter, rainy season, dry season, and the seasons never stop. They're always the same, over and over. And so even the gods that they worship all revolved around the seasons. They had the sun god, the moon god, the rain god, the harvest god. And so they believed that life on this earth is just one unending cycle of pain and suffering and then death. It all just keeps coming like the seasons, like the waves just keep coming. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it will always will be. And so what can you do? Well, what else can you do? But eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's the only hope they had. Enjoy life as much as you can and then die. That's all we got. But then, like we saw a couple weeks ago, out of the blue, this God named Yahweh appears to this man named Abram. And he says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make your name great. And I'm gonna bless you so that you will be a blessing to every family on earth. Every family on earth will be blessed through you. Suddenly, there's hope. There's hope out of the blue. God gives Abram a son and then a grandson and then 12 great-grandsons. And pretty soon there's a million people in his family. God uses Moses to bring them into the promised land that he gave them, Canaan, where they become prosperous and powerful. King David comes to rule and they have victory after victory. His son Solomon becomes the richest ruler in the world. But then they start to be kind of like the old Pihi, in that nice little pool. They get too comfortable. They start looking for hope in other places. They start worshiping the gods that everybody else in the world worships. And so God sends some prophets to warn them, prophets like Jeremiah, who tell them that if they keep pushing God away, God's gonna push them away. But they don't listen. They don't listen. So God sends the Babylonians. They come storming into Jerusalem not just as a wave. This is a tsunami on their heads. Things get really bad. We've seen images in the last few months out of Israel, out of Palestine that are horrifying. And that gives you a good idea of what these folks were experiencing as Jeremiah is writing Lamentations. In the chapter before this, it says, both young and old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and young men have fallen by the sword. Things are as hopeless as they've ever been. And Jeremiah is right there in Jerusalem, experiencing it all right with them. So look at what he says in Lamentations 3, verse 1. I am the man. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod 
of God's wrath. I am under God's wrath, which is a really shocking thing to hear from Jeremiah. This is the prophet of the Lord speaking. He's the most righteous man in Israel. He's the one who's been warning everybody else about the wrath of God that's coming. But now he says, I'm the man who's under God's wrath. He's not saying, you're under God's wrath, and I told you this was going to happen. That's what I would do if I was in his shoes, okay? I am an expert at saying, I told you so, without saying, I told you so. It's like a spiritual gift. I'm really good at this. It's, it's, it, it, it happens naturally. I was concerned this might happen. You know, that's, that's, that's a line I can use. Or if I'm being, you know, polite, I seem to recall mentioning something similar to this happening, with my kids, it might be, hey, somebody better pick up the phone because I called it, all right? I called this. I'm pretty good at that. Jeremiah, though, he's a lot more spiritually mature than I am, and so he's not saying, I told you this would happen to you. He's saying, this is happening to us all because we all deserve it. He recognizes that he's a sinner, just like everybody else. Like G.K. Chesterton. He was a writer in England who lived about 100 years ago. And uh, the Times of London sent out this inquiry to some famous writers, and they wanted them to write on this question. What's wrong with the world right now? What's wrong with the world right now? A bunch of other famous writers sent in essays with all of these things that are wrong with the world. Well, Chesterton sent in two words. What's wrong with the world? I am. I am what's wrong with the world. That's Jeremiah. And so here are the consequences. Verse two, he has driven me away. He's forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. Yes, he repeatedly turns his hand against me all day long. And if God turns his hand against you, if he gives you cracks, there's probably a reason for that. Because that's not the way God usually rolls. Remember what he said to Moses? We read it a couple weeks ago. Look at Exodus 34. Exodus 34, he said, the Lord is a compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Yeah, God is just. He won't let sin go unpunished, but you got to wade through his compassion and his love and his grace before you can get to his justice. You got to fight your way past his love before you can get to his wrath. And that's what Israel's been doing. Pushing their way past his love. And so now they're experiencing his wrath. Skip down to verse six. Jeremiah says, He's made me dwell in darkness like those who have been dead for ages. He has walled me in so that I cannot get out. He's weighed me down with chains. And Jeremiah is comparing God's wrath to being trapped in a dark dungeon. He's in prison, and there's no way he can break out on his own strength. Verse 8, even when I cry out and plead for help, he blocks out my prayer. He's walled in my ways with blocks of stone, He's made my paths crooked. He blocks out my prayer. Have you ever felt like God was blocking you off from him? Like you were trying to pray and it just felt like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? 
Yeah, sometimes God actually separates himself from us so that he can show us how we have been separating ourselves from him. Verse 10, he's a bear waiting in ambush, a lion in hiding. He forced me off my way and tore me to pieces. He left me desolate. You ever felt like God just ambushed you? You're walking down the road, just minding your own business, and out of the blue, bang, you get hit. You're blindsided. That's what, it, that's what Jeremiah's just experienced. And now it just feels like wave after wave after wave, crushing and pounding and grinding. Things just seem hopeless. Skip down to verse 19. Jeremiah says, remember my affliction, my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and I've become depressed. If I just look at my situation in life, I've got no reason for hope in life. No reason. Yet, verse 21, the best word in the Bible, by the way. You see this word, yet or but, over and over and over again in Scripture. It's a glorious word. Yet, I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. I have hope. Yeah, the waves are still crashing on my head. Feels like I'm going to get swept out to sea, but I have hope because I'm clinging to the rock, the rock of God's faithful love, even while I'm in the middle of his wrath and discipline. That's some incredible hope you can see here. So, family, how are we going to find that kind of hope? Whatever kind of waves are crashing on our heads right now, how are we going to find this hope that Jeremiah has? Well, you can already see it. Here's number one. Look for God's wrath. If you want to find hope, you got to look for God's wrath. And I know, even as I'm saying that, that doesn't make any sense. Look for God's wrath. No, 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 no. We're positive vibes only, okay? We only want to focus on God's love and peace. We want rainbows and unicorns. We don't want to think about God's, God's wrath and his discipline. But a big part of our hope is that we have a God who won't allow evil to go on forever. That's huge. He won't let sin and suffering and evil and pain and misery continue. He will stop sin and evil and suffering and punish it. And that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. I know when you're seeing God's wrath and discipline firsthand, up close and personal, like Jeremiah is right now, it's easy to forget that it's good. And so that's why Jeremiah says, I call this to mind. I gotta discipline myself to remember this. I gotta remember that God's discipline is a good thing. And I gotta remember that God's discipline comes from God's love. Like it says in verse 22, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. That's another way to build hope. Number two, look for God's love. Like Jeremiah says, his faithful love. The Hebrew word for faithful love is hesed. It's a very particular kind of love. It's not like the warm, sappy, sentimental love that we usually think about when we think of love. 
the kind that makes you watch a like romantic comedy and actually root for the main character to divorce her husband and go run off with some other guy because they love each other. It's not that kind of love. Hesed love is loyal love. It's love that doesn't depend on your emotions. It depends on an act of your will, which means God's love for his people is never going to change, never. God loves you because he decided to love you. God loves you because he promised to love you. That's the only reason. So there's nothing that you can do to make him stop loving you. And Jeremiah says there's a reason for that. Look at verse 22 again. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. Love this. His mercies never end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His mercies Never, and that's why they're plural. Did you notice that? It's not that God's mercy never ends. His mercies never end. They just keep rolling in. Like the gentle waves in Waikiki. Remember lockdown? When all of us who normally avoid Waikiki like the plague, we could go down and surf. Waikiki was just empty. You remember that? Even if... Everywhere else on the island is a lake. There's always like knee to shoulder high waves in Waikiki. They just keep rolling in, just fun little waves. That's God's mercy. That's his grace. It keeps coming. Jeremiah says it's new every morning, which means God's grace never runs out. You can never use up his mercies. God keeps providing more grace all the time. So that's another way to find hope. Number three, look for God's provision. Look for his provision because every morning, God provides exactly the amount of grace you're gonna need to get through the day. No more, no less. Exactly what you need. Think about it like this. Imagine if you woke up in the morning and you had $122 in your wallet. Boom, it just appeared. You're like, all right. You go through your day, and you spend $12 on lunch, you spend $50 to fill up your gas, and then you spend $60 picking up dinner for the family as zippies on your way home, and suddenly you realize, I just used exactly what I had. That's exactly what I needed. The next day, you wake up with $97 in your wallet. The day after that, you wake up with $108 in your wallet. And every single day, it's exactly what you need to make it through the day. That's the grace of God. It's new every morning, and it's exactly what you need for the day. If you need extra grace today, God didn't give it to you yesterday. He's not going to give it to you tomorrow. He gives it to you today. He drips out his grace just piece by piece through the whole course of your life, and that's so you can see his faithfulness through the course of your whole life. That's something you hear about God over and over in Scripture. But his faithfulness. We heard it in Exodus 34, I'm abounding in faithful love. Abounding in faithful love. Or what about Deuteronomy 7? He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. You know how many years it takes to see a thousand generations? More than we've seen so far. Joshua 21, not one of the Lord's good promises has failed. Everyone was fulfilled. 
or Deuteronomy 32. He is the rock. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. He's the rock we got to cling to because he's faithful. Family, God's faithfulness is the thing about him that infuses every other thing about him. Like God is good, we know that. But what if he wasn't always good? What if he decided, you know, I'm kind of tired of being good. I I just want to take a break from being good just for a couple hours. Just for a couple minutes. What if God decided, I just want to be bad. I want to be real bad for just a couple minutes. Just that. Imagine what would happen to this planet if God decided to be not good just for a few seconds. God's faithfulness, his reliability, his unchangingness is what makes every other part of him so good. So find hope in him. Jeremiah says, God will never stop loving you. He'll never stop pouring out mercies on you. He'll never stop providing for you. He'll never stop being faithful to you. So find hope in him. Like Jeremiah says in verse 24, I say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I put my hope in him. The Lord is my portion. He's all I need. Just him. Just having him is all I need. My hope isn't in what the Lord gives. My hope is in who the Lord is. So here's another way to find hope. Number four, look for God's goodness. Look for his goodness even in the middle of your grief. I mean, that's why God gives us grief from time to time. That's why he takes things away from us sometimes. I don't know if you've been experiencing a season lately where it seems like God is taking things away from you. Well, sometimes God does that, and that's to help us love him for his goodness more than his gifts. Ask yourself this. Does my love for God depend on his character or on my comfort? His character or my comfort? Sometimes God takes things away from us to force us to ask ourselves that question. And to help us realize that we love him more than we love our comfortable life. And guess what? Sometimes he does the opposite, too. I've seen it once or twice. If your life isn't good, and you've started to kind of build an identity on that, you've come to see yourself as a victim, and you kind of take pride in that, God might need to give you really good things to help you realize that you love him more than you love being a martyr. He'll give you really good stuff. Some of you are like, how do I sign up for that club, right? Well, the point is, God doesn't want to bribe you to love him. He he doesn't want us to love him for what he gives. He wants us to love him for who he is. And that's why Jeremiah says, I'll put my hope in who he is. Even when he's not doing what I was hoping he would do. Even if it seems like he's rejecting me. Skip down to verse 31. The Lord will not reject us forever. That's what it seems like when life isn't going the way we want it. Seems like God's rejecting me. No, he will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he'll show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. For he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. 
Yeah, God causes suffering, but he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. He hates to see his kids suffer, but he allows it because he's got a bigger purpose for it. And so here's the last way to find hope. Number five, look for God's purpose. Look for his purpose. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion. God's always got a purpose for our suffering. It's kind of like mama giraffes. Have you ever seen a giraffe giving birth? It's pretty shocking, okay? Mama giraffes give birth standing straight up. And so baby giraffe, when he emerges, he drops 10 feet down onto the hard ground. 10 feet. After that kind of trauma, you would think mama giraffe would want to nuzzle him, care for him. No. As soon as baby giraffe gets up, mama lifts up her leg and kicks that thing like a football across the savannah. Little baby giraffe flies 10 feet, wobbles around, and as soon as he gets up, mama comes over and kicks him again. Kicks him all over the prairie. Now, if you or I went around kicking baby animals, we'd get arrested, right? We'd be all over stolen stuff Hawaii. We'd get canceled. It would not be good. But mama giraffe can get away with that because she's got a purpose for it. There's lions and hyenas always around. From the minute that baby is born, she's got to teach her baby to get up, run to her as soon as danger appears. Mama giraffe is teaching her baby physical survival skills, and sometimes God has to teach us spiritual survival skills. He does see that things that seem good and some things that seem bad, and it's all according to the abundance of his faithful love. All of it. Skip down to verse 37. Jeremiah says, who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has ordained it? Do not both adversity and good come from the mouth of the Most High? Why should any living person complain, any man, because of the punishment for his sins? Let's examine and probe our ways and turn back to the Lord. Why does God allow adversity? The same reason why mama giraffe kicks baby giraffe. It's to make us get up and turn back to him, to make us find our hope in him. Well, maybe hope is kind of tough for you to find right now, especially during this season when we're all supposed to be so happy, right? You hear happy Christmas carols playing, go to the store, or the greeters say, happy holidays. You get cards in the mail with these happy, shiny families and the photos inside. You're like, man, everybody seems so happy right now. How come I'm not happy? I'm supposed to feel happy, but I just don't. You know why that is? Because there's no hope in the Christmas season. There's no hope in any of this. The only hope we've got is in God's goodness and grace, which was given to us through the birth and life and death and resurrection and reign of his son, Jesus. The only hope that Christmas offers is that the baby in the manger grew up and he died on a cross to take the wrath of God that you and I deserve. We only get a little taste of God's justice. A few little shore break waves on our heads. Jesus took the full tsunami of God's wrath for all of us. 
in our place. Jeremiah said, do not both adversity and good come from the mouth of the Most High? Yeah, in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you see good coming through bad. Ultimate good coming through the ultimate suffering of his son. Like we heard this morning in Hebrews 2, we see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, for he brought many sons and daughters to glory. And that is the hope that we have in Christmas. The hope that the ultimate good came through the ultimate suffering. That's the hope of Christ. And we desperately need it. We need it for ourselves. We need it for our families. We need it for our islands. We need it for our world. Because people who have the hope of Christ have an impact on the world. People who have hope in Christ have an impact in the world. That was true 500 years ago when the Black Plague was turning all the cities in Europe into graveyards. Everybody fled the cities. They went out to the countryside. Doctors took off too. The only people who were left behind to care for the sick and dying were the Christians because they had the hope of Christ. 10, 15 years ago when the, the tsunami spread across Southeast Asia. All the survivors fled to higher ground. The only people who were left behind to care for the little two-year-old kids who were wandering the muddy streets without their parents were the Christians. Because they had the hope of Christ. Almost four years ago, when this unknown virus was spreading through Wuhan, everything locked down, every store closed, medical office closed, First responders locked themselves away. The only people who went outside when there was no food, no care, nothing, were the Christians in homemade hazmat suits, emerging from underground churches to come out in public and care for people, deliver food, medical supplies, because they had the hope of Christ. In this world, there's always gonna be waves crashing on our heads over and over and over again. And so we need, this world needs, people who are calm and collected, firm and steady because they are clinging to the rock. People who have hope in Christ have an impact on the world. Where's your hope? Let's pray together. Father, I know so many people that I can see right now in this room who are experiencing wave after wave crashing on their heads. We know we live in this world where the waves will never stop, not in this lifetime. So that's why we're so grateful that we have the rock to cling to, the rock of your faithful love that never changes. No matter what we do, your love is always the same. Thank you for the rock. Now, Lord, 
Give us hope in your faithful love. Give us hope in your sovereign power and gracious care. Help us to reach out our hands and receive your new mercies every morning. And through that hope, help us to have an impact on the world around us that so desperately needs hope, especially in this moment. Thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.